Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Monday, uh, May 7th, 2018, starting at 1.24 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 156th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and su- how to support the production of future episodes by co- becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Charlie Obert uh, about the concept of essential dignities in traditional astrology. Uh, so, hey, Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this because this is actually the the genesis of this is actually that you just published uh, a new book on this topic titled "Using Dignities in Astrology." Right. That is correct, and Chris is holding it up there. Yes, awesome. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit uh, first about your your background in astrology. So, um, you and I first met actually at the 2011 uh, traditional astrology conference that was hosted by the American Federation of Astrologers. Right, I remember that. Yes, and okay. Met you. We got to meet you a bit further when you were here in Minneapolis doing a Hellenistic. Uh, Presentation. I think it was on Zodiaco releasing, wasn't it? Was yeah, and I, after that, I actually got like a cold. I think at the beginning of that weekend, and so I had to like power through the entire weekend, like giving a workshop while I was just like dying, basically. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, good times. Uh, so the the AFA traditional conference though that was really unique because that was one of the first times there was like a full conference hosted by a major major organization that was on traditional astrology and the three. There was basically just three speakers. It was me and Demetra George and Benjamin Dykes, and I think James Holden came and gave a guest lecture at one point. But that was was that that was really your full introduction to traditional astrology, right? That's when you became passionate about the subject. Actually, no, I had been well. Just quick, I've been doing astrology on and off since like late eighties, and it mm-hmm. was about in the early to mid two thousands that I began to get dissatisfied with modern astrology, got more and more interested in checking out um, traditional. And in the process of digging that up, found a couple of books in the local occult bookstore by a translator by the name of Benjamin Dykes. Okay. And so I had read some of Ben's stuff and studied some of Ben's stuff prior to the conference. But interestingly enough, even though we live 15 minutes from each other, I met Ben in Arizona at that conference. Okay. So yeah, so you found out that this guy whose books you were, you're reading, it turned out he was from Minneapolis, Minnesota. So you guys live in the same city. We're about 15 minutes from each other. And starting after that convention, he and I have been working together for a month. I've been learning quite a bit from him. We did a uh, traditional astrology study group here in town in Minneapolis that ran for like three years, which is where we got a chance to take a lot of these traditional astrology techniques and just work them with person after person after person in a group and so on. And it was out of that experience that um, I wanted to, uh, uh, backing up for a minute, I'm a teacher by trade. Training is what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find a way to present traditional astrology that made it a bit easier, if you will, to dive in. It's a really, really huge area. There's a huge amount of detail. Yeah. Are you you saying traditional astrology is complicated or or something? Just a hair. Just a hair. (laughs) Just a hair. Yeah. 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 It, it, 
going through the traditional attacks, it took me, and you no doubt have gone through this also, it took me a while to like go through and then go through the tales again and then go through the details again. And then you start picking up patterns, right. making sense of them and simulating them. Well, that's what I wanted to write about was those patterns to give a um, someone who's new to the traditional um, way of doing astrology kind of a framework, a roadmap, a way of thinking about it to make the older text more uh, approachable. Sure, to make the concepts more more accessible. Yeah, ex exactly. Uh, you, I think, have been doing um, similar kind of thing only in Hellenistic, you know, making that yeah. approachable to a modern world, modern audience, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's always that tricky thing because there's so many different layers and steps that it has to go through in terms of like you have the text themselves and recovering the text and reconstructing them and sometimes like editing them or comparing manuscript variations. And then you have the level of like translating the text. And then when it's, it's translated, like reading it and actually understanding what the text says. And the, there's various levels that that goes through. And then eventually taking the techniques and beginning to imply them. And then another level of like having applied the techniques and taught them for several years understanding how to like teach them and present them in an understandable way to other people or how to apply them regularly in practice. So luckily the traditional revival has been going on for so long now that we have people like you that are finally, you know, in that that end game area of what are the practical things that are valuable from traditional astrology that have been found over the past 20 or 30 years and how can we bring those back in into practice in modern times. Yes, and I like the way you put that it's how can we, number one, assimilate it? And mm. number two, and this is one of the things I'm uh, passionate about, is I want to see more of a dialogue and more of a synthesis between traditional and modern astrology. Because um, sure. one of the things, you know, along with um, what you're referring to in terms of the transmission of the text and the translations and so on, we also need to take into account that we live in a 21st century, very, very different world than the world that the people who wrote a lot of these uh, traditional texts do. So it's not just translating the techniques, it's like translating worldviews, you know? There's, yeah. there's a philosophical dimension to this that I think is really important. So there is some level where astrology is culturally relative, and when whatever the astrology is of the time ends up reflecting the, the the culture of its day to some extent, and some of that you can still mine like the underlying universal principles that are applicable ever everywhere. But sometimes that still needs to be adapted just because society is a bit different different than it was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. Yes, and I do think there are indeed. Um, traditional principles that are related to the very structure of the universe. And part of what we have to do as astrologers, every generation is reconnect with the core, reconnect sure. with the living principles. So we're really doing out of that rather than if you will, doing it, a, doing it at a book level, doing it at a, at a text level. Yeah. And that's really important because that was a thing that I had to balance in mind because I was doing a survey of Hellenistic astrology and I had to cover everything included, you know, not just the practical application, but also just reconstructing what the different views were. And sometimes that's tricky from a textual standpoint, because that was actually, I remember one of the other reasons it's worth noting to have you on where other listeners may have heard your name on the podcast in the past, which is your um, discovery and argument for uh, Saturn as feminine uh, a few years ago and some mm -hmm. of the discussion that that's created 
after you made the observation that there's a at least one line in Dorotheus where he treats Saturn as a feminine planet rather than a masculine planet, which seems to go against a large part of the later tradition derived from Ptolemy. And I know that's a, a big subject of, of research and interest for you over the past few years as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that it's a bit outside of the scope of what we're doing here today, but I think yeah. that is tying in with kind of an ongoing passion and interest of mine is part of what I want to see recovered along with the recovery of the traditional astrology techniques is more of the living philosophy and worldview that gave it birth. Mm -hmm. And where I'm particularly drawn to in that is the entire uh, Platonist tradition, because so much of the symbolism of that just gels right in with the symbolism astrology, this symbolism of the numbers, of the geometry, and so on. Sure. And the Saturn piece is going to fit in there somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where, but it's part of that recovery of the living world. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping uh, possibly later this month, probably getting bumped to next month, I was going to do a discussion with uh, a- another astrologer scholar who specializes in Platonism and Neoplatonism. We're going to have some discussions about philosophical concepts from Platonism that are relevant to astrology. Yes. So I yeah. would love to talk about that. I am passionate about Platonist astrology. I'm very passionate about the late Platonists, especially, like Proclus. And a lot of the writings of the late Proclus, the astrological symbolism is woven right in there with the worldview. It's it's kind of a logical and inevitable part of it there. Yeah, well, I think you'll definitely like this discussion. Then it's uh, the scholar is Nate. He's a uh, astrologer from Mexico City who got a, a PhD focused on Proclus's approach to theurgy. So that's um, Jose Manuel Jose Manuel Redondo. So hopefully we'll be talking to him in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so back to the main topic. So you did that study group, that traditional study group with Ben Dykes for a few years, mm-hmm. and that actually eventually produced your first book, which was titled An Introduction to Traditional Natal Astrology, A Complete Working Guide for Modern Astrologers, right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Which, by the way, I've been very gratified um, by the um, reception of that. And part of what I've liked about that is that it's a book on traditional astrology that a lot of modern astrologers could relate to who otherwise found the tradition, the older tradition, a bit harder to approach or intimidating or something like that. I feel like mm-hmm. it's a bridge-building book. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a really nice introduction. I can see how it came out of both your background in teaching, but also doing those study sessions with Ben and trying to translate some of that material into a way that's understandable for contemporary astrologers. Yes, uh, very much. So, and then over the so that came out in 2015. Now it's 2018, and you've been teaching uh, classes on traditional astrology at Kepler College for a few years, mm-hmm. and that That's is correct. part of the genesis of the current book on essential dignities, right? That's correct. I've been doing for about the past two years a class um, that is using dignities in astrology. It's the same name as the book, mm-hmm. and wanting to take the full suite of all of the dignities and recover them. And as part of that, also recover the, if you will, the specific flavor or the nuances of the various different essential dignities. 
Um, Ben's done just absolutely pioneering work with that, where he's been going into the etymology of these. And right. if you go back and look at the original terminology, what did rulership mean? What does exaltation mean? What does dignity, debility mean? It gets kind of a concreteness and a richness. So the terms don't just become rulership good, detriment bad. They have flavor, you know? And right. recovering that concreteness is just, it adds so much color and richness to interpretation. Yeah, that's been a really important um thing in the traditional revival over the past 20 years that was especially pioneered by Robert Schmidt and the idea that the technical terms that were chosen in ancient astrology were not just um you know technical terms that were just completely interchangeable with some other term and only had meaning within the context of whatever technique was being used but instead that the ancient astrologers would oftentimes pick a word from normal language, from everyday language to use to refer to a specific concept and that the word itself was supposed to invoke a full range of different uh, meanings and different underlying philosophical and conceptual um, sort of understandings or, or assumptions. So that even though oftentimes, and so therefore, um, one of the things that traditional astrologers have done, and Ben has always also followed this approach to some extent, is really analyze the original words that were used under the premise that understanding those words will give you greater meaning into what the technique was essentially supposed to be used for or mean in some sense. Yes, very much. And part of the, um, I'm going to rephrase some back because part of the trick of translating it, mm -hmm. the words in the original, the way I'm going to phrase it is, they had connotations in what I'm going to call the street language of the times, the ordinary living, you know, embodied in day-to-day -day experience. Right. Well, the challenge then is to find ways to translate it into our street language, our concrete metaphors, without cheapening or anything like that, but um, where, yeah, they become earthy. They become part of a regular experience rather than a vague um, concept. That, that's yeah. essentially what you're getting at, right? Yeah, and I mean the most the most famous example was the original word for the the four angular houses or the four angles in a chart, mm -hmm. which we call angles, but were originally the Greek astrologers or the astrologers who spoke Greek used the word kentron, mm -hmm. which has like three different distinct meanings in Greek. Like one of the meanings is to is like a prod that pokes or excites something into action. So the notion that planets in the four angles were um, energized and were poked or excited into action like they were sheep that were being kind of like poked with like a cattle prod or something like that mm -hmm. um, but then the other meaning in greek for kentron was uh, a pivot or that which uh, something else revolves around mm -hmm. because the four angles were supposed to be these these pivotal or these turning points where the planets would make a turn uh, in one part of the chart or another and that also conveyed some sense of centrality or being at the, the center or pivot of something. Right. And isn't there also a sense in um, that term of something like a tent stake or a place where things are anchored? Yeah. So, you well, know, like, what, like driving a stake into a ground. You know? Well, that's what Ben later showed is that the Arabic astrologers, when they started in the, in the 8th century, so the Greek astrologers came up with these terms around the 1st century BCE. And then many centuries later, around the 8th century, there was a decline of the Roman Empire and then a great flourishing of astrology in Baghdad and in the, in the different Arabic-speaking lands. 
And one of the th- first things they did is they started translating all of the ancient Greek texts into Arabic or as many as they could find. Right. And they had to, one of the things they tried to do is they tried to find terms in Arabic that matched the Greek terms that they were translating. So one of the ones you're talking about is one that Ben has focused on, which is the Arabic astrologers seem to have gone out of their way to try to find a good word for Kentron or for those four angular houses. Mm-hmm. And they used the term in Arabic, watad, which Ben says means like stake or tentpole. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In any case, then it's got the, it's a structural angle um, that kind of holds the whole thing together. The uh, the stakes, the angles are, it's like the rest of the, using the tent metaphor, it's like the rest of the chart is stretched and held together by the four angles. Right. Which, Which is also interesting. Then, yeah. It's very it's, interesting. It's interesting just because it tries to convey some of the meaning of the original Greek term, but you can see that already some of the original meaning is lost a little bit there, like the idea of it being pivotal or central in some way. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like kind of there, but it gets lost. And so that's why you yes. understand. Then imagine what happened is that that term, what taught in Arabic, was eventually translated in the 12th century into Latin. Mm-hmm. And then whatever Latin term was eventually chosen was eventually translated into English in like the uh, you know, 17th century. And then that's eventually the terms we're using today. So exactly. There, that's there's good- like five languages in between us and the Hellenistic Persian, Arabic, Latin, English. Right. So that's a good example then of what some of the traditional astrologers and scholars have been doing in wanting to go back and and study these language variations to understand what the original words were that were used and what the original meaning was underlying the concept. And that, to circle around eventually back to our topic, is what you try to do in this book is you're trying to get back to what is some of the original meanings underlying the concept of what became known as the five essential dignities. Yes, yes, very, very much so. And so maybe so, that, go ahead. Maybe that can be our transition point into talking about this this topic and, and sort of introducing it to an audience that might not have any background in what the essential dignities are. Okay, I think that's a great idea. Okay, uh, so the five essential dignities. So some people know this concept. If you see like a, a traditional astrology chart, you'll see sometimes like a table, especially from the Renaissance tradition, you'll see like a table with like a scoring system and five different areas for five different quote unquote essential dignities. Right. So what are what are the five essential dignities just really quickly? What are the, the names for them? Okay. Um, there's the two major dignities, the first one of which is called rulership, and that's still used in modern. The or other or the one, domicile. Right, domicile. Mm-hmm. Um, some variant of lord. Um, and exaltation, which also has made it into modern astrology. Then mm-hmm. the other three minor dignities have been pretty much lost. You have triplicity, and you have bound or term. You'll see it translated both ways in the modern English literature, and then mm-hmm. face. Face, and, face or, or decan is sometimes, sometimes called decan. Right. And that face and decan, that's kind of a ambiguous one because that goes back to at least two different traditions that have very different ways of using it. There's a Western way and there's an Eastern way in yeah, terms of the attributions least, and the use. It seems like with all three of the, the minor dignities that, that you're in terms of making that distinction between domicile and exaltation being major dignities and minor dignities being triplicity, term, and face, mm-hmm. it seems like all three of the, the minor dignities have some variant traditions, have at least two variant traditions, if not more. 
Very much so. Very, very much so. Okay. And the freaky things is that, well, taking like uh, terms for a minute, there's two very different ways. Well, I shouldn't say very different. They're conceptually similar, but they break things up differently. Um, what's called the uh, Egyptian terms and what's called the uh, Ptolemy's terms. There are astrologers practicing both. And part of the freakiness of the astrologer's art, it, both of them seem to get good results. Both of them seems to work, you know? Sure. I mean, there's some debates. I mean, obviously, that's a hot, that can be a hotly debated topic, especially in terms of different astrologers having preferences of one over another. Yes, very much. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some of those differences and discrepancies later. But let me, one of the things I wanted to do is just share, um, because I have, I actually have a, a a rulership or an essential dignities table from the Hellenistic tradition. Um, and I'll go ahead and put a link to this in the description page for this episode on the podcast website. But I think okay. I'll probably just put it at hellenisticastrology.com slash rulerships.pdf. Okay. So anybody who wants to download a free copy of this rulerships table can, and it shows um, all five of the essential dignities, domicile, exaltation, triplicity, bound slash terms and decan slash faces, as well as two of the uh, signs of debility, which um, I'm calling adversity and depression, although this is based on some some debate where in the Hellenistic tradition, they didn't really seem to have a term for what later became known as detriment. So detriment right. is when a planet is in the sign opposite its domicile, and depression or fall is when a planet is in the sign opposite to its exaltation. Right. And originally, um, in fall, was considered to be much more important than what we now call in detriment. Yes. It's much right. more featured in the earlier texts. Sure. So let's talk first about the terminology that's being used here in terms of um, dignity versus debility, because I think that was one of your starting points where, where you've given some great lectures on this topic. And that's one of the things you talk about at first, which is just the terminology. So why are we using the term essential dignity? And how does that, why are we using the term dignity first? And then secondarily, why is it um, essential dignity versus whatever the alternative is? Okay. Uh, essential and accidental being the alternative. Let's start with dignity. Because okay. uh, part of what's interesting, if you look at the uh, etymology of the words that are a dignity and the etymology of the word stability, they have two different sets of connotations, and one of them's more political, one of them's more physical. So like in the political sense, dignity and debility is essentially a term that has to do with one's place and one's recognition and one's responsibility within society, within overall culture. Mm -hmm. A planet that has dignity has got an accepted place. It has an honored place, and it has both the respect of that and the responsibility of that. Uh, a planet that does not have dignity or is in debility doesn't have a place, doesn't have a job, is an outsider, is at odds with the overall um, cultural, political, social structure. So it's a question of where do I fit within society and the political sphere, or where do I not fit? Am I recognized in it? Am I not recognized in it? That's the political dimension sure, of dignity I, I, and debility. I, 
I like mm-hmm. that. I think that's really good putting it in a political context at first, and that because that basically raises the two primary meanings to me, or, or like the the keywords I would use for the two, the the phrases that you just brought up. One of them is autonomy. Mm-hmm. So have, having power. One of the things you were saying is having political power versus not. And part of the way that one has that is either having autonomy and being self sufficient mm-hmm. versus not having autonomy, but instead being under the power or under the control of somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. And in with the um, autonomy as an ability to act, it's also, there's a very strong connotation of responsibility in there. Mm. So like take a rulership, um, a planet that is ruling a sign. And this ties, right. Domicile yeah, I just want to make sure, since we're calling all of them rulership, I just want to make sure that we're calling that one, having a specific term for that one, which I think is typically domicile. Yes, domicile is a good way to put that one. Okay. So that taking, say, Mars is the domicile ruler of Aries. Mm-hmm. Um, this means that any planet that is in Aries, Mars has a responsibility to. Um. This other planet is within Mars' domicile, therefore Mars is the host. Mars has an obligation to treat that planet well to the best of its own ability, considering where it is, what kind of condition it is, and so on. So it has a control um, connotation. It also has a responsibility connotation, and you really need both. Right. So this is based on the the underlying conceptual premise that the the first dignity, the first major essential dignity, the most important one, which is called a planet being in its domicile, right. that um, that was originally conceptualized when a planet is in the sign that it rules. So for example, Mars in Aries or Venus in Taurus or Mercury in Gemini. Um, maybe I should actually very quickly list the rest of the, the major dignities for domicile. So it's sure. the moon, moon in Cancer, Sun in Leo, uh, Mercury in Virgo, Venus in Libra, Mars in Scorpio, Jupiter in Sagittarius, Saturn in Capricorn, Saturn in Aquarius, and then finally Jupiter in Pisces. Right, which so, is the map of that beautiful uh, Themamundi mandala. That's where the uh, rulerships are laid out there. Yeah. Right. So, And that's based on the premise that you assign the two luminaries to the two signs after the summer solstice, which are Cancer and Leo, and then the rest of the traditional visible planets are assigned to each of the signs flanking out in zodiacal order. Right. And then Saturn, the Lord of Darkness, rules the two signs that are the furthest away from the signs of the lights. Sure. And the rulerships are divided from that, and the aspects, and the meaning of the aspects, and all kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. And the basic conceptual premise underlying that is that the place the sign of the zodiac that a planet rules in the domicile scheme is the sign that it calls home or that it yes. somehow or that it somehow lives there or or designates that sign as its home or dwelling place yes right which means both it really likes being there but it also means then when anyone else is within that home they're responsible now this is both they're the host which means they have to treat them well but also, when you're in their house, you play by their rules. Right. So it has both the control and the responsibility uh, connotations there. So that brings up the second conceptual point then, basically. So the first one is autonomy uh, mm-hmm. as an underlying thing, underlying the concept of dignity. And the second one is the idea of being at home versus being 
away from home or being somehow foreign or or in some instances estranged from your home. Yeah. And phrasing it again within political, and this is building on what you're saying, um, it's also having a place, not having a place, being recognized, not recognized, fitting, not fitting. Sure. So that's in with the political and spinning more of the political. And I want to add a, another piece to this, because this is another dimension that's part of the whole dignity, debility thing, mm-hmm. is the language in dignity and debility also has a connotation that has to do with the opposites of health and lack of health, ease and disease, being strong, being weak, being building up, being breaking down. So there's a physical uh, component to the meaning of the terms. And the two dovetail really beautifully when you think of it. If you think of like uh, when you are at home, you're likely going to be at ease. You're comfortable. Right. Um, when you're not at home, you're ill at ease. You're stressed. You're physical off there. So the the political and the physical dimensions of the term, they complement each other. They work together. Sure. And, and that seems to be the most important underlying concept for understanding this idea of a planet being in its own domicile as the dignity is the idea that when a planet is in is at home and is in the sign that it prefers to be in in that way, it's able to express its its core significations and the meanings that come naturally to the planet um, in a way that's uh, easier for the planet and it's more readily available to express those significations in a genuine way uh, because it is at ease being in its own uh, environment or its own circumstances versus if it's in if it's not at home, then it's in a sign ruled by another planet or or the home of another planet, and therefore it has to rely on that planet to provide it resources. Yes. And when it's taking on the resources of another planet, that's going to express that's going to color the expression of the guest planet, and therefore it's going to express its its significations in a way that are, are altered or different compared to how it would express them on its own. Yes. And phrasing it again a little bit different back, it's the difference between playing by your own rules and having to play by someone else's rules. Right. The ruler is the one who sets the rules. So that core idea of the the guest-host relationship, and that's something that goes back really early, becomes foundational, especially in the context of the, the domicile scheme but also in the other dignities as well, which is that that question of is the planet – um, does it have self-autonomy and is it able to do what it wants on its own and express its own significations or does it have to rely on its host for support if it's staying away from home? Yes, yes. And also wherever a planet is located, um, you look at the dignities for that particular place to look at where can this planet look for support? It's the planets that are responsible there. They're the ones that are going to be the helpful ones. They're the ones that are obligated to um, help that planet in whatever its condition is. Sure. So so it actually matters. So there's going to be a difference between, let's say, on the one hand, there's going to be some planets that are going to be more helpful or more inclined or more supportive to be more, more inclined to be supportive or helpful to a guest planet that's staying in its sign 
versus there's other planets that um, might not be as supportive or might not be as help- helpful. Exactly, which ties in with the whole other concept, which it might be worth our touching on down the road a bit in this, which is reception. Sure. Dignity and reception are just completely woven together. And right. it's the mixture of the two that I think they just become phenomenally useful in chart interpretation. Sure. And, and reception, basically, to put it simply, is if a planet is staying in a foreign sign, so one that it doesn't rule, what relationship or more specifically, what aspect does it have with its domicile ruler, if any? And if it does have some aspect, then it's going to be a more supportive relationship. Whereas if it has no aspect, then uh, the relationship is going to be less supportive because the guest planet has become estranged from the host planet. Yeah. Uh, and the actually, I want to separate a bit out here that um, aspect and reception are really not, they're complementary concepts, but they're not quite the same. Uh, re- reception very much has to do with one of the dignities, whether there's responsibility there. Aspect, then, I'm using this in the technical sense of the term, has to be, is there a, Ptolemaic aspect would mean, is there a communication? Is there a link? Is there a line of vision between whatever the one planet is and the house it is ruling? If you have a combination of the responsibility, namely some rulership, and the aspect then you've got a real helping and controlling bond going on there. If one or the other is missing, it's going to create uh, difficulties with that. Sure. So, so reception is both a, is a combination of that affinity through sign based, some sort of sign based rulership, but then also a, a connection through the aspect. Yes. Yeah. Got Make it. sure of the two. All right. Um, so, in terms of this. This concept of our first dignity as we're going over to domicile that I mentioned of just planets ruling an entire zodiacal sign. So the sun ruling Leo or Mercury ruling Virgo. Right. So that, that idea of, you know, those planets being like they're at home when they're in those signs and by virtue of that are often interpreted uh, as working out more positively or being more auspicious in those placements because they're able to uh, manifest their natural significations more readily, so that tip- typically planets in their own domicile can tend to work out better in the chart, all other factors aside, uh, more or less, right? Yes, yes, very much so. And um, they're playing by their own rules. They're not playing by someone else's rules. Then equally important with that when in charts, because you will have a lot of planets that are not in their own domicile, mm-hmm. Um What's their relationship with the planet that is the domicile ruler or wherever they happen to be? Um, Because that domicile ruler has responsibility to them. Is that ruler itself in good shape? Is it in a um, domicile that it feels comfortable? Is it in a part of the chart where it can act strongly? Um, Is there a aspect between the ruling planet and the domicile that it rules and so on? Right. Is that making so, sense? Yeah, definitely. So so part of this is just to give a, a concrete example, it's the difference between Venus, for example, being in Taurus, which is one of its own signs, one of its domiciles, mm-hmm. being able to express, let's say, broadly speaking, Venusian significations, like let's say unifying 
and reconciling significations more readily because it's in it's in its own environment and therefore can express those significations of unifying and reconciling mm-hmm. unimpeded or uninhibited from anything else versus if Venus was in one of the signs that Mars rules, so let's mm-hmm. say Aries or especially Scorpio, then Venus uh, wants to still express those unifying and reconciling significations. However, it's being fed um, instead; it's being fed Martian significations from Mars or martial significations, which have, have to do with uh, things that are often contrary to Venus, like severing or separation. Right. So then the question becomes: How does Venus manifest? Uh, you know its own significations of unifying and reconciling its own preferred tendency, but how does it do that within a Martian context of the opposite significations of severing and separation? Right. Yeah. To use um, kind of a um, showbiz sort of metaphor, I'll take uh, Venus and Aries there. This is rather like if Julie Andrews, her manager came up to her one day and said, Julie, good news. You're going to be playing the lead in Rambo. It's not exactly a good fit. Or like the opposite would be, you know, um, Mars and Libra would be Sylvester Stallone's manager coming up and saying, good news, you're playing Mary Poppins. Right. There's a mismatch between the planet's essential nature and the role it's having to play, the role it's playing by. So it's like Mars, if Mars has those martial, like warlike um, significations that come natural to it, yes. it'll express those more naturally in its own domiciles of Aries and Scorpio. However, if you put it in a in a sign where the the planetary ruler of that sign has completely opposite significations, there's going to be some some inherent awkwardness about that planet's attempts to manifest those significations or its own significations within that context. So that's a great example of like, you know, Rambo or like a, like a warrior attempting to play the role of like a, like a nanny or something like that, like a nurturing role. Uh, It's, 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 it's part of the problem is that it has problems doing that because the role is somehow foreign to it or is alien to it in a way that it has some problems adjusting to or in a way that is just doesn't immediately come naturally to it and therefore it has to work harder to be successful in that role. Yes. And and let me use a example where this might be something where the a planet is trying to uh do something useful here. I take again take uh Venus and Aries. This could again as a metaphor be something like uh a nurse in a war zone. It's mm, someone right. who is doing a Venusian sort of healing service only within a martial sort of environment, you know? Right. And in that case, that would that would be an enormously useful service, but a caring, peaceful, and loving uh, nurse is not going to be at home when there's bombs flying overhead and shells flying and bullet and that kind of thing. I mean, that's really funny that you use that example, actually, because that was one that Kelly and I used in the last episode, which is uh-huh. the the birth chart of Angelina Jolie, mm-hmm. uh, where she has a time chart and she actually has, um, well, she has some of that just in terms of, uh, we were talking about some of the significations of Mars uh, in the 10th house and uh, the ruler of the ascendant in the 10th house in Aries. And the way that that's manifested in trying to help some uh, children from war-torn countries, especially. Hmm, okay. um, anyways, but uh, sort of going back to to what we were talking about, one of the other things that this brings up is a point that you make in your lecture about um, 
you know, not always placing value judgments on it, or sometimes there can be positive or negative manifestations of even planets that are not doing well. So yes. maybe maybe that's jumping ahead. Maybe before we get to that, though, we should talk a little bit more about that concept of debility. So if a planet being in its domicile is like a planet that's at home, mm-hmm. then there's also another concept that is the opposite of that, which is when the planet is in the sign that's opposite to its domicile in the zodiacal circle, then it's called a planet that is in detriment or um, right. what I've been calling the place of its adversity. Or mm-hmm. I, I learned actually a year or two ago that in some non-English speaking traditions, the term they used for the use for this is a planet being um, uh, like a foreigner in its in its own in in the land or something. I'm trying to think of the I term. Like it's, that, yeah. It's not estranged. It's um. What, what's what is it when a per, when a person is, uh, you know, away from home, but they're they're like in another country that they don't exile. Is that what ex- you're exile? For? Yeah, that's the exile. term. Mm-hmm. So in, in in a number of non English speaking languages, the term exile is used to refer to the sign of a planet's detriment or adversity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a useful term. And then thinking about, um, I'm going to use. Dignity and debility, another way of phrasing that is insider-outsider. A planet that has dignity is, if you will, part of the system. It's part of the establishment. It's Mm -hmm. got a recognized position and so on. Well, a planet in debility is some sort of outsider. It either doesn't have a recognized place or it's in a place that it doesn't want to be or it's it's not given any authority. It's not given any responsibility. Um. That can express in some really, really useful ways, like planets in debility. If you're outside the system, you might be someone who's working to buck the system, who's working to change the system in some ways. Mm. You see? So it it could be a useful dynamic uh, thing with that. Or another thing you'll find, something that seems to happen a lot, I'm going to use Mars here. It's fairly common to see Mars in its detriment in either Taurus or in Libra in either very competitive solo sports, like uh, Muhammad Ali has Mars in Taurus up very near his uh, midheaven. Or you might see that in military leaders or something like that, a place where being solo, being competitive, fighting the system, bucking the system, something like that, serves a necessary purpose. So that that's that's um a detriment used as a force of change. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that idea of being an outsider or being foreign in some way and therefore be sometimes being you, you've seen that manifest in terms of interpretations as sometimes indicating being outside of the established power structure. Right. Um being a force for change. Um an example I use in the um, Dignity Debility class of a person who basically made his name and being a living and so on, being in detriment, is the comedian from the 50s and 60s, Lenny Bruce. Okay. Half of the planets in his chart that are in a really powerful configuration are in either detriment or in fall. And... Being in detriment, being in fall, bucking the system, the man was a comic who used his comedy to 
attack and try to change the system and that kind of thing. There was a in-your-face, I'm an outsider, and you're going to deal with it quality to the man. Mm-hmm. He he made his living being in detriment. And that was sometimes like personally detrimental or that created problems for him occasionally in his life or in his career, right? Yes. Um, that created some serious problems both in relationships and also in terms of uh, problems with drugs and problems with the law and that kind of thing. They kind of wove together. You had a similar sort of um, – Another good example of that detriment, because it's an interesting character where uh, it's kind of mixed. Again, I'll take uh, Muhammad Ali. He has, um, it's part of what made him a great prize fighter is number one, that Mars and Taurus uh, up on the midheaven. Uh, Mars and Taurus is not happy. It's not a, a cooperative Mars. But that Mars... In his chart, if you look at it, Holstein is ruling his ninth house, which is the ninth house of religion, faith, that kind of thing. And part of Muhammad Ali's entire impact on society was precisely that when he did win the uh, heavyweight boxing championship, he stood up and said, I am no longer Cassius Clay, I am Muhammad Ali, and I am a Muslim. This is in your face. I'm doing a religion that does not match in with your culture. Deal with it. That's that's kind of he, – he was using detriment as a fourth for change. It ended, sure. up, it ended up losing his um, um, world championship. He ended up spending some time in prison and so on. So that, that detriment is so much a part of the man – and who he is and then the impact uh, that he had in the world, and part of what is good about his impact came precisely out of his being in detriment. Sure. I mean, that, that's, such a, that's a very complicated example, though, just because- yes, it is. Um, you know, so on the one hand, there, there's different pieces of that that get tied into you know, how that affected his life and, and the ways in which it was positive or negative. I mean, he it, yes. it was Mars ruling the ninth house of religion and belief, and it was in the 10th house of career. There he um, is. And so uh, that was importing his religious beliefs into the sphere of his career so that his religious beliefs became tied in with and became connected with his career in a, in a very important and, and notable way. But then also that that sometimes brought challenges and obstacles and setbacks as a result of religion being imported into his career in that way. Yes, yes. Okay. So um but that's actually no, but that actually comes goes to your point though in the other idea of dignity in terms of when a planet is opposite to its domicile it being like an exile or it being like a foreigner or there being something um strange or unique or out of the ordinary about it in some way and that would actually be a good example there because Mars in Taurus in the 10th whole sign house in his chart as the ruler of the 9th and the notion that the religion that he had adopted was was foreign to or was seen as foreign to within the context of you know 1960s America or, or what have you very much yeah and this is a case where that um that quality of detriment that what it gave you is both what made him a great fighter and what made him do what he did religiously those are two different expressions of it in his life Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, 
So that's interesting. And that brings us to an important piece of this that you get to that I skipped over earlier that you talk about in your lectures on dignity, which is um, a lot of modern astrologers run into, or sometimes this concept of essential dignities has been rejected a few decades ago during the movement towards psychological astrology under the premise that it's entirely about putting value judgments on placements that are not not appropriate because sometimes uh, you know, dignified planets can work out in a negative way or uh, debilitated planets can work out in a constructive way, as you said. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that in terms of you know, usually this point in your treatment of the subject and, and the idea of like value judgments for dignity and debility? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one of the things, I'm going to phrase this back in a slightly different way. Um, dignity and debility doesn't mean good and evil. Um, dignity and debility, it is a descriptive rather than a judgmental sort of a term. Um, and it's similar, and this is tying in with a connected or related concepts, which is benefic malefic. Mm-hmm. But let me take, um, let me take dignity and debility, and I will take a personal example with this one. Dignity and debility. Um, in my natal chart, my Mercury is in Pisces, very late Pisces. Okay. Which means is it, it is in detriment and it, it is in fall. Um, fall we should talk about a little bit later because those two played together with that. But Mercury is most emphatically not at home in my chart. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that in descriptive rather than evaluative terms, it makes an awful lot of sense of what I've had to go through in my life to figure out how to use my mind in a way that fit. Mm. Because when I was young, I felt like I was an outsider. I felt like people didn't take me seriously. I felt like the oddball that nobody wanted to listen to and that kind of thing. And that was a problem. This was not fun. But on the other hand, it was precisely because of that that I put so very much energy into language, into communication, into how language works, into philosophy, and so on, to make that work, but work within a sphere that is dealing with a subject that is not really recognized or culturally part of the overall society we're in, like, say, astrology. Sure. It's, yeah. it's an outsider's art. And in my particular case, I've experienced that detriment and the debility and the difficulties that's caused me and the challenges that's caused me. But at the same time, it's precisely those challenges that ended up giving me my particular strengths. Sure. That's where I was going with the Muhammad Ali example. That so sometimes you there's can't like a s- compensatory, compensatory uh, aspect yeah. of it in terms mm-hmm. of it being perhaps something that somebody struggles with or, or lacks earlier in their life, but that eventually, in some instances, especially if it's well-placed, you know, right. aside from being mm-hmm. debilitated, let's say, by zodiacal sign, by essential dignity, there can be other mitigating factors that can allow a person to overcome the shortcoming or eventually make it a strength, perhaps, even though it was an obstacle early on? Yes, very much. And that gets, wow, that we could branch all kinds of places with this one, which is cool. And part of that depends where else in the chart is that planet getting support. And this also, um, 
there's a big difference between the way you would interpret debility in a horary, which is a moment in time, and in a natal chart where there's room for growth, where mm. there's room for the assimilation, where there's room for um, what could be a liability to be turned into an asset. Sure. You very sure. much have to allow for that. Yeah, that's a really good point in terms of a distinction between sometimes the branches and the way that the concept is applied in one branch always not being as as completely applicable as we sometimes think just because the time frames involved are so different and because there is sometimes a, more of a growth and a, a long-term period of evolving of the placements that can play out during the course of an entire life. Right. Like say, I finally got around to publishing my first book when I was like 62. Sure. <laughs> it took me yeah. a while. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is that sometimes I think people get hung up on when you're coming from modern astrology, you're used to looking at the core significations of the planet and that being like an overall statement about the native and their psyche and their ability to like do certain things like Mercury and communicate or Venus and have relationships or things like that. But sometimes right. in traditional astrology, one of the things we were just demonstrating with the Muhammad Ali example is that sometimes the dignities and abilities can relate to specific areas of life and specific circumstances that will arise or describing um, concrete scenarios that will arise in one specific part of the life. Like in his in his chart, we were describing a specific example of um, the native that, that comes in through the rulership scheme and the house placements, but of religious beliefs from the ninth house being imported into the tenth house yes. and the quote unquote, let's say, debility of Mars, it being in the sign opposite to its domicile. So it's detriment or exile or adversity bringing a, a foreign component into um, that placement mm -hmm. and that being part of why it was um, some somewhat problematic for the native. So that's a very specific like delineation that's being brought into play by the rulerships and specific placements and is not necessarily even a fully um, universal statement about Mars necessarily in and of itself. Yes. And related to that, and this is the slang terms I use in the course and the ones that we're talking about is each of the rulerships, and now we're talking about the Dimasai rulerships, um, the term I use is turf lord. Um, that planet has responsibility, not in the entire life, but in one particular part of the life. Mm. Um, As a result of the house rulerships? Right. And all kinds of things. Like that's where I think um, the modern tendency to just take the sun sign and if you will universalize it to just say i am a pisces or something like that right no it depends where you're meeting me <laughs> um if you meet me at home you're going to get moon and cancer if you meet me at work you're going to get uh mars on my midheaven if you meet me in a business meeting you're going to get my saturn in my 10th house and so on mm. each of the planets has their own turf Sure. And it's within that particular area that that planet will, well, take responsibility. Sure. And that's, I think that's important because then you understand that sometimes the dignities are playing out in a more limited sense in describing a certain part of the life where yes. there might either be strengths or, or weaknesses in some way, or let's say challenges versus um, fortunate circumstances or opportunities or something like that, like things yes. that come easy versus things that come a little bit harder. Right. 
And related to that, I'm going to push this a little bit further here, related to that whole concept of turf floors, just particular uh, areas, Mm -hmm. then you also have the absolutely critical traditional concept of time lords. Right. Not all the planets are equally active all the time. Not all planets are responsible for running things uh, all of the time. And that's combination of turf lords and time lords and the dignities and how that lays out the responsibilities that's where this really becomes just an enormously rich system. Yeah, and that was something I covered in, what was it, like two two or three episodes back in the episode on annual perfections where I did a whole cool. episode demonstrating that concept, uh, which people can check out. I believe it's in episode 153. It is. It is. And by the way, I have bookmarked your uh, lecture there in the class I'm just starting on predictive techniques. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- so that's your next project after this is you're teaching a class on predictive techniques and you're working on a follow-up, a third book, which is going to be on predictive and timing techniques. Correct. Yeah. And what I'm finding is it's very much um, in order for the predictive techniques to make sense, they have to just completely be building on the dignity and ability I'll call them the tools of astrology in terms of the ability of weighing up things. Um, Is this in a a place where it's comfortable and a place where it's not comfortable? Is it powerful? Is it not comfortable? Is it acting quickly? Is it acting slowly? And so on. If you can't evaluate, you can't apply any of these predictive techniques. So the dignities are just completely assumed for any of these predictive tools to make sense. Right. You can't make a a specific statement about what happens when a planet will be activated in the chart by a timing technique if you don't understand what the original condition of the planet is in the chart because all the timing techniques are doing is activating the natal potential. So it's only by understanding what the natal potential is via things like the essential dignities and and the basic condition of the planet in the chart that you can make specific statements about what will happen when it becomes activated. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, phrasing it again slightly differently, um, your Jupiter transit is not my Jupiter transit because Jupiter in your natal chart is in a completely different condition in Jupiter and mine. When I experience a Jupiter transit, it activates how Jupiter is in my particular natal. Everything needs to build from that. Right. And that's so crucial. This is one of the crucial turning points of why traditional astrology is appealing because it's very hard to make specific statements about what a person, what will happen in a person's life or what years are going to be experienced as more um, challenging or more easy. Uh, mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't have the ability to identify when a planet is well placed in a chart versus when a planet is having some, some sort of challenge to its placement. Exactly. And that's really core to the essential dignity scheme as well is you need it in order to be able to make distinctions like that between, you know, what would it look like for a, ch- a planet to be somewhat well placed in a chart versus what would it look like for a planet to have some challenges to it. Um, and that's what things like this are useful for. Exactly. And part of that, I know this is part of my own experience, I'm pretty sure at yours, but part of where I think people, and this definitely happened in my case, where traditional astrology, really digging into it becomes compelling and necessary, 
is precisely when you're having to make sense of adversity. Sure, right. Modern astrology, especially in the in the in the late twentieth century, about uh, I guess I go from about mid sixties on to the turn of the century, seemed to have a very very strong bent of we have to put everything positively. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes life isn't positive, and when you're dealing with some serious negative things, it's not helpful to have someone tell you everything here is positive. It doesn't resonate right. to your experience. Yeah. Yeah. That was really coming up. I mean, I was really reflecting on that after the last episode, the first episode of May, when we did chart readings mm-hmm. live for some listeners sending questions, and then we would delineate the birth chart questions. Because one of the issues that comes up, it, it's an issue. There, there's an issue sometimes between what you can say based on a person's birth chart, like what you can determine or tell about a person's life and the areas that are going to be mm-hmm. you know, easy or the areas that are going to be really challenging versus what you say to a person within the context of a consultation. And those two things are not always one and the same. Like an astrologer may yes. be able to see or, or determine certain things about a person's life, but what an astrologer should actually say within the context of a consultation um, is sometimes different and can be more limited because it may not be appropriate to tell a person everything that you can see about their life um, within that context. And I think that's what happened in the modern discussion is there was a push in in the push towards psychological astrology there was a push towards being careful and developing healthier uh, consultation dynamics in modern times which is a perfectly admirable thing but then what would happen is that sometimes the consultation dynamics and considerations would become the only thing the, the dominant thing in the discussion and there was this jettisoning of the separate question of just you know how far can we actually go with the techniques of astrology? You know what you should say to a client aside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, yeah, yeah. This is this is getting a little bit um, off the topic here, but part of that whole what you can say as client and consultation, and this is part of the tradition very very much. Um, astrology is traditionally in response to a question. There's some sure. kind of specific topic or question or need or something like that that is posed of the chart. And the analysis and the interpretation and all of that is all focused by that question. Or right. in a client session, it is focused by the concern, by the need of the client. Um, I, t- I, how would I put this? Um, Another astrologer I talked to, the way she put it, there are some astrologers, if you will, who are pontificators and some who are dialoguers. I'm very much a dialoguer. Yeah. That for me, the agenda for the reading has to come out of the client rather than out of me, you know? Yeah, that was something that also came up in that last episode because we took the questions from the people, but we we didn't have them in front of us live to give any sort of feedback on – uh, you know the statements we were making, and whether that was gelling or whether it wasn't gelling, and and we quickly remembered that that's typically an integral part of most consultations is the the dialogue or the back and forth between astrologer and client because that can help to key the astrologer into what parts of the chart are really you know lining up very closely with the person's life and what their actually lived experiences of those 
archetypes or the archetypes associated with those placements versus you know because you could have the same chart or the same pl- chart placement um, but applied to two different lives and two different people playing out the same chart placement mm-hmm. in ways that are radically dif- different in the specifics, even if archetypally in some umbrella sense they are still very similar or still fitting the same pattern or dynamic. Right, or even sometimes in the same person's life, just in a different area of their life. The same chart dynamics will have different meanings in different areas at the same time. Astrology is such a rich, multivalent, uh, symbolic kind of language that, at least for me, um, where this art really comes alive, where I think astrology becomes what it's intended to be, is it's coming out of that interaction with the client that the it's the astrologer's assimilation of this universal symbolic language that can then map to the individual um, client's experience. Mm, and sure. when, that, when that happens, that's the magic. That's where right. this art really comes alive. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, so to bring us back on to our topic or to move on to the next area, I think we've covered pretty adequately the foundation. And it really seems like the concept of domicile, the first essential dignity, is the the basis and the foundation of all of the rest of the dignities, both conceptually and, and technically in some sense. Would you agree with that? I would agree that the meanings of, in the modern sense, rulership and detriment are very, very nearly synonyms of the meanings of the terms dignity and debility. Sure. Okay. They're very, very similar in meaning. Or or maybe we could say even like paradigmatic, that the concept of domicile and- yes detriment or domicile and adversity or whatever you want to call it, uh, that it's paradigmatic of uh, the rest of the dignities in some sense as well? Yes. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Okay. So let's move on. So we're about an hour into this. So let's start cranking through the other the other four essential dignities. So the second essential dignity is um, exaltation, right? Right. And exaltation, that's a very, very rich uh, term there, that it connotes being highly valued. It connotes being exalted and being raised, and it can sometimes literally mean being raised up. It can salt being um, highly valuable. It can connote being honored and so on. Um, As compared with rulership, an exaltation can sometimes mean a position where a person is honored but isn't doing an awful lot of work. It can be a symbolic position of ownership, like a um, like a monarch who doesn't do a lot with the governing of the country, yet is the symbol of the country. Um, and related to that uh, concept of being exalted, like in William Lilly, he says that sometimes a planet being exalted means that uh, the person has a very high opinion of themselves. So being exalted can connote arrogance. Interesting. Yeah. It's a very it's a very rich flavored sort of term. And then the opposite to that one, which I'd like to bring up, you've got the term fall, which it's the opposite of being raised up is being dropped down. A planet that is exalted is uh, respected. A planet in fall is not respected. A planet that is exalted is listened to. A planet in fall is not listened to. Um, 
It's also the word that is translated in fall can sometimes connote being thrown in prison, uh, losing power, that kind of thing. There are very, very rich pair of concepts. Sure. So, and quickly to list them off. So the, mm-hmm. the, tr- the traditional planets, the signs of their exaltation are the sun is exalted in Aries, the moon is exalted in Taurus, Venus is in Pisces, Jupiter in Cancer, Mars in Capricorn, Saturn in Libra, and Mercury in Virgo. So those mm-hmm. are the, the signs of the exaltations, which is the second major essential dignity. And then the signs, when a planet is in the sign opposite to that, it is said to be in the sign of its fall or its depression. Right, exactly. And leaving this one on just for a minute, since we had the Thema Mundi up uh, a little bit earlier, Comparing those two different dignities, something that would be, that's a very, very interesting uh, meditation is to look in the Thema Mundi as to how the planets pair up in opposites, as opposed to how they pair up in opposites with the exaltations. You still have Saturn opposite the lights with both the rulership and with the exaltations, but the other planets pair up in opposites differently. It, um, it's a fruitful topic to meditate on to kind of tease out why are they paired up differently. Right. Why do I so, have Jupiter opposite um, Mars here instead of Jupiter opposite Mercury? Right. So, uh, so in the domicile scheme, we have like Venus. Both of Venus's domiciles are opposite to both of Mars's, and so there's some, some contrast of like Venus being about peace and Mars being about war or mm-hmm. Venus being about unifying things and Mars being about severing and separating things. Or um, in the the two luminaries, their domiciles, both of the luminaries provide light and they're said to be opposite to the, the darkest and the furthest visible planet that is also the dimmest. And so it's in the two signs, Capricorn and Aquarius during in the Northern Hemisphere, the darkest and coldest part of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that contrast there, but then what you're pointing out is there's some kind of different contrast that's being drawn out by the exaltation scheme where, um, you have some repetitions where, for example, the sun is exalted in Aries, which is opposite to Saturn being exalted in Libra, but then there's a different contrast with Jupiter being exalted in cancer opposite to Mars and Capricorn and, uh, Mercury in Virgo opposite to Venus and Pisces. Right. And let me play with that Mercury and Venus uh, opposition, because one that I think this is related to, when I look at those two, it's not quite the same as what we mean when we say the two different halves of the brain, but there is kind of an analytics, analytic synthetic kind of opposition going on there. Mm-hmm. That Venus is the artisan planet. Venus is the the aesthetic, the shaping, the holes, the mercury is the the details, the analyses. Sure. Makes sense? Yeah, it's, I think it's, and I think that's one of the contrasts that uh, like Rhetorius makes that contrast in the seventh century of drawing out something like that, right? Nice, yeah. Uh or he says I think like Jupiter signifies life and Mars signifies death or can signify death. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why they are opposed in the exaltation scheme. Right. Or like here in the exaltation, Jupiter might be the peacemaker and Mars might be the war maker. Right. Or Jupiter has a collective side, Mars has an individual side. Sure. It's, so, it's, it's very interesting meditation. 
Right. So one of the things that's unique about the domicile or the exaltation scheme is that it actually partially relies on the previous dignity, which is the domicile scheme. Mm-hmm. And that's um, drawn out in Rhetorius, where he seems to focus on the notion partially, or part of the notion here is that planets, when they're in the sign of their exaltation, are in a sign where the domicile lord of that sign is particularly complementary and helpful towards the planet that is exalted there. So that what what's going on partially in the exaltation scheme is you have um, ideal signs for the guest host relationship. So that if a planet isn't at home, if it's not in its home sign, mm-hmm. then these are some signs in which it will do particularly well because it has a positive interaction with the ruler of that sign or the host of that sign. Um, in some cases, yeah. I'm some. I'm not sure if it's quite like that. Let me take uh, two that I'm looking at that I would kind of question that. Uh, Capricorn, um, Mars and Saturn are not exactly buddies. Yeah, and yet Saturn's I mean, the ruler and Mars is the exalted. That's true in the sense that they have contrasting significations. Where, for example, like Mars, uh, Ptolemy and the other astrologers say that Mars is excessively hot. And Saturn is excessively cold, and those contrasts are problematic. But in in Capricorn, it seems like part of the reason why Mars does well is because it is restrained by Saturn, and it was restrained in such a sense that it's able to channel Mars's energy in a more constructive way than it might be channeled otherwise. So that at least that particular combination of Mars and Capricorn tends to work out well for Mars. Mm-hmm. I wonder with that one, I wonder if, is that the reason why Mars was put there? Or did we figure that out about Mars because Mars was there and now we're making sense of it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the issues. There's a bunch of issues like that with the essential dignities because there's some historical debates or there's some historical uncertainty about chronological precedence and which came first. Um, mm-hmm. So for example, a number of historians trace the exaltations back to the Mesopotamian tradition because there may be some cuneiform tablets that indicate that the exaltations came first, or they sometimes link the exaltations with the Mesopotamian concept of the secret places, mm-hmm. um, which are called like bit nisriti or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, uh, and then we don't have evidence for the domicile rulership scheme until about the first century BCE or so during the Hellenistic tradition. So that it almost seems like exaltations were developed sometime earlier for some unclear reason, and then the domicile scheme came about later. But there's a little bit of historical um, debate about this, and this is something I talk, I spend some time talking about in my book because one of the problems is if you look at the uh, exaltations, you can see that they're tied into other concepts such as domicile, such as sect, and such as aspects in the Thema Mundi. So, for example, Porphyry points out that all of the diurnal planets, when they're in their signs of exaltation, uh, are configured to one of their domiciles by a trine. So, the sun in Aries, uh, where it's exalted, is configured to its domicile Leo by trine. Uh, Jupiter in Cancer is configured to Pisces by trine, and Saturn in Libra is configured to Aquarius by trine. So that's kind of weird, maybe as a coincidence, but then he points out that all the nocturnal planets are configured to one of their domiciles by sextile. Mm -hmm. So the moon exalted in Taurus is configured to 
Cancer by sextile. Uh, Mm -hmm. Venus in Pisces is configured to Taurus by sextile. And uh, Mars in Capricorn is configured to Scorpio by sextile. So that's really weird and problematic because it creates an underlying issue, which I talked about in the book, which is, does that mean that all of those concepts of domicile aspects and sect already existed in the earlier Mesopotamian traditions century earlier, centuries earlier than we have evidence for them. And that means that all these concepts came from the Mesopotamian tradition and had been practiced for centuries prior to their appearance in Hellenistic astrology and the Greek sources. Or does that mean that there's something wrong with the current historical narrative that believes that the exaltations came first and instead the exaltations were developed later Around the same time as all of these other concepts, um, it's it's kind of like an open question right now in terms of of which came first and what the rationales were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyway, but it's still a good question in terms of because I I feel like Rhetorius and some of the other Hellenistic astrologers talk about that notion of the relationship between the exalta- exalted planet and its domicile lord, and so there still might be some open question about whether that was a you know, uh, after the fact rationalization, or if that's a rationalization that was somehow there early on. Yeah. And part of it is just that, um, the way human minds work, if we are presented with an order, we will attempt to make sense of it, you know? So it's, it's, it's really difficult to tease out which came first in this particular case. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the tricky things about traditional astrology is we're reconstructing all these things and figuring out, when you see patterns and things like that, which of those are patterns that are indications of like a deliberate conceptual construct that somebody created at some point in time, or that's mm-hmm. in some instances, like maybe you could argue is inherent in nature versus when are you seeing a pattern that is, was not deliberate or, or was accidental or, or came about sort of after mm-hmm. the fact. Yeah. Like definitely the, the rulership scheme has, um, the domicile rulership scheme has kind of a neatness kind of a thought-outness, kind of a symmetry and a logic and a structure to it that the exaltation scheme doesn't quite have. Yeah, I mean, it has more of it, but it is, I mean, that thing with the diurnal and nocturnal planets and the trines and sextiles, I think, is is up there in showing that that might be just as much of a uh, an abstract sort of invention or a constructed scheme as the domicile scheme, just because that's a little too clean for it to just have occurred naturally. Mm-hmm. Or, and this is where the um, the question starts to uh, come out of this, one of the things that uh, like a astrologer who had roots in the Platonic tradition would say that, well, of course you're going to see this sort of order and this sort of symmetry and et cetera. With astrology, we're peering into the mind of God, and of course it is ordered, of course it's uh, symmetry, that by meditating on these and studying on these, um, it's kind of a cliche word, but we're we're studying divine order. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the underlying questions about how much of this was somebody discovered something about the nature of the cosmos that was already built in there, and was true that was was uncovered, let's say, versus how much of this was constructed or created by somebody at some point in time based on abstract concepts and may still mm-hmm. work or may still be relevant in some way, but it, it's unclear. You know, I don't know. There's a little bit of a of a disconnect there. Or there's a little bit of an open question about how that works exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
All right, so we're getting a little far afield here, so let's let's bring it back. So we have the concept of exaltation, and we have the concept of a planet opposite to the sign of its exaltation being in the sign of its depression or fall. Right. And we have some of those underlying concepts where uh, the Greek term hoopsima uh, meant like literally something that's raised up or 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 put on a pedestal, whereas the concept opposite to that or the sign opposite to that is that when a planet is uh, pushed down or is depressed or like pushed into something so that it's lower than it should be otherwise, and those being part of the underlying conceptual idea. Right. And sometimes those underlying conceptual ideas have very, very concrete meetings and interpretation. I'm going to uh, give an exp- a specific example with that. And this example I discuss in the book in one of William Lilly's um, horary questions. It is a question about um, a ship that was lost at sea and what was going on with the cargo with the ship. Okay. The question boiled down to the valuable cargo being represented by Jupiter, who was in Cancer, but who was retrograde. And it was applying to a conjunction with Mars who in Cancer is in his fall. So just taking literal meanings of the dignities here, Jupiter in Cancer is highly valued. You've got a highly valued cargo that's retrograde, so it's damaged. It is applying to Mars, who is in fall. And fall has connotations of falling or literally sinking, but also a planet in fall isn't listened to. So you put that together, and it's a highly valued cargo that sank. It was never heard from again. Okay. So it becomes, in Lily, a very literal delineation in that sense? Yes, yes. And it's that kind of literalness of the delineation is part of what discovering the richness of um, these terms is about. Um, I'll I'll use uh, another one with Mercury and Pisces. Um, Mercury in Pisces is in fall, which means not listened to, not heard. Um, the poet Maya Angelou has, uh, Mercury in Pisces. It's conjunct Venus. But in her particular life, one of the ways that that Mercury in Pisces played out is there was a period when she was a child after a very traumatic rape that she didn't speak for five years. So right. in that case, being in fall literally meant not being heard from. I, yeah. I see. I see concrete um, expressions of the dignities like that a lot, and and the more we can give these interpretations, yeah, I like the word concrete. The more we can give them concrete uh, meanings, the richer our astrology becomes. Yeah, definitely. And and her case was also unique because she, of course, also had a mitigating, well, she had both a, a challenging thing that was on top of that, where it wasn't just that Mercury was in the sign of its uh, its fall or its depression in Pisces, but also uh, there was a close square from Saturn, which was at 19 degrees of Sagittarius, right. squaring Mercury at, at 20 degrees of Pisces. So you have right. that that inhibiting sort of aspect from Saturn. Also, causing some problems with the uh, the ability to, to speak or communicate, 
Um, but then it also had a positive, oh, lovely chart, uh, a couple mm-hmm. of positive mitigations. Uh, one of them is that it was applying to a conjunction with Venus at twenty. So Mercury is at twenty Pisces, and it's applying to a conjunction with Venus at twenty-one Pisces, mm-hmm. where Venus is actually exalted. So on the one hand, exactly. you, have, you have Mercury and its fall in Pisces, and you have Venus and its exaltation, and Venus is actually able to to help out or to mitigate uh, Mercury to some extent in that way. Uh, but then also you have Mercury at seventeen. You have the midheaven at seventeen degrees of Taurus. Which is forming a sextile within about three degrees with Mercury at 20 degrees of Pisces in the eighth house. So, mm-hmm. one of the other challenging things about that Mercury placement is it's in the eighth house, which is called the idle place in Hellenistic astrology, but it's able to be mitigated as a result of that sextile with the midheaven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is a nice case. I'm glad you brought up that Venus and Mercury because this was an example of that Mercury being debilitated, drawing a great deal of positive quality and strength from that exalted ruler, the planet with exaltation in the sign, right there that it's applying the conjunct to. Venus is a lot of what made the expression of that Mercury positive. This woman was a poet and a autobiographical fiction writer, I will call it with that one. By the way, while you've got that, there's another interesting um, part of this one, and this is a mixture of uh, dignities and aspects there, is you've got that Venus and Mercury there over in the 8th, and you've got that Sun-Jupiter there over in the ninth, and they're a reverse. They don't see each other. There's no aspect between the two. But each of them have an aspect with that... Um, Saturn in Jupiter down in the fifth house there. Right. So that um, I do an analysis in the next book I'm doing with that, that there's something about that connection between Sun-Jupiter up there with Saturn and Venus-Mercury down there with Saturn, that when things are just right in terms of the directions and um, that kind of thing, that, that Saturn ends up being... I'll call it a connector between that uh, Sun-Jupiter there and the Venus-Mercury there, which otherwise can't see each other because sure. they each have the strong aspect to Saturn. Right. So it's like a, it's like almost like a translation of light? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and her charts actually also, this is an inter- another ex- interesting example for another reason, just because she actually has two exalted planets. So mm-hmm. both the ruler, she has Leo rising and the Sun is exalted in Aries in the ninth whole sign house while applying to a conjunction with Jupiter within two or three degrees. And then Venus is also exalted as the ruler of the 10th and the third house uh, in, in Pisces conjunct Mercury. Right. And both of the rulers of the angles are exalted. Right. Right. Which makes sense. And there's also, um, this is another interesting part since this woman is essentially known for um, best known for her autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, that you have sitting there right on the ascendant of the outer planet Neptune, um, ruled by that sun Jupiter. She is presented into the world by her fictional creation, which is part of what I think is going on there with Neptune sitting right on the ascendant. 
Sure. We see Maya Angelou through her recreation of herself in her art. In right. her book there. And it has that quality, the um, Jupiter-Sun conjunct in Aries in the ninth sort of quality of the, I'll call it the inextinguishable dignity of the human spirit. I'm trying to take that conjunction and and interpret it into what what drove this woman, what motivate this woman, what's the spiritual core that she's coming from. And that Sun-Jupiter conjunction with Sun-Exalted is a another way you can phrase that, if you will, inextinguishable dignity. Right. Um, and, and, you know, going back to the original, I like that her example in particular, because it's interesting going back to that original notion of being exalted or, or raised up or extolled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's an interesting example having two exaltations just because she's received so many awards and honors over the course of her lifetime, eventually for her work. Um, so I remember just a few years ago, she won or she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2011. She's won uh, Pulitzer Prize nominations mm-hmm. uh, uh, for her book of poetry. She's run won three Grammys. Um, she's been awarded over 50 honorary degrees. So sometimes this notion of of being honored or being raised up or extolled can work out in very literal ways in some some people's lives. Or yes. other times it can be, you know, for her it's sort of for her life's work as a whole because we're it's tied into crucial rulers of the chart or overall rulers of the chart, such as the ruler of the ascendant or ruler of the tenth. Whereas for other people it might be limited to some other specific area of the life where they receive recognition or ex- are extolled in some way. Yes. And in her life particularly, I think it's fair to say that she is honored as much for the values that she stands for, the spiritual values she holds, as it is, as she is just has the individual. And that's a very ninth house sort of exaltation. And that's also a very ninth house sort of quality where Jupiter's involved. Sure. Do you happen, uh, related to that exaltation and that kind of value thing, do you happen to have the chart of Belafonte available? Um, I don't think I do. Okay. Um, the man has um, Sun Jupiter Kazemi in Pisces right at the top of the chart. Okay. And if you think of that man, number one, he's got charisma to burn. I mean, I've seen films of him when he was at his peak and just, wow, the magnetism that didn't put out. But in this case, Sun Mercury, uh, pardon me, Sun Jupiter Kazemi in the sign of Jupiter's rulership. Mm-hmm. This is Jupiter, which is the planet of spiritual law and values, etc. Kazemi, which literally means burned into the heart. A phrase that this man would use very often in talking about judging people, he would talk about their moral compass. Mm-hmm. Jupiter's son, Kazemi, in Pisces. Moral compass is a beautiful way of uh, translating that dignity into how it played out in the man's life. Literally, his higher values were burned into his heart. He lived those values. That's what motivated him. That's why he did all the civil rights work he did and so on. Sure. That's where we're taking these dignities and then seeing them take flesh, seeing them being very vivid, played out in the lives of people. Sure, definitely. 
All right. Well, let's um, move on then to some of the lesser dignities so that we can we can touch on them during the course of this episode. So we've covered domicile and exaltation, and and those are pretty much universal for the entirety of like the two thousand year tradition of astrology, at least for let's say from the first century BCE through the seventeenth century. And even though there have been some modifications, where once the outer planets were discovered, some modern astrologers started. Like reassigning planets in terms of of domiciles or sometimes exaltations, and there's now some debate about that where there's there's tensions between the modern astrologers and the traditional astrologers based on whether they adhere to those original um, assignments or not. Uh, there are also the three essential dignities, and with those, there's a little bit more variation even in the actual ancient tradition, right? Yes. And let me real quick, before we get away from that um, traditional modern, I think the concept of rulership in traditional is very different from the concept of rulership in modern. In traditional, I think rulership is mostly about responsibility. In modern, I think rulership is about affinity. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's a common um, rebuttal from the traditional astrologers recently. And I have some sympathy for it, but I also have a little bit of pushback. So what what's the argument or, or what would your argument be for that? Well, I'll give you an argument. Let me think in terms of Thema Mundi, and I'm talking about traditional um, rulerships, house rulerships of planets. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, Mars is the ruler of Scorpio, the domicile of Scorpio, right? Okay. Mars is hot, Mars is dry, Mars is kinetic, Mars is in motion. Scorpio is wet, it is cold, it is fixed. They are very, very different um, in terms of their meaning there. Mars is not ruler of Scorpio because Mars has affinity with Scorpio. Mars is ruler of Scorpio because that's where Mars has responsibility. But why and does I think part have pardon? responsibility? Just because in the order of the Thema Mundi, that's where it was assigned. Right. So the original traditional rulership scheme for the domiciles comes out of the sort of abstract schematic of if you assign the two luminaries to the two signs that follow the summer solstice, mm-hmm. which is the hottest and brightest part of the year in the northern hemisphere. So if you assign them to Cancer to the moon and then the sun to Leo, and then you assign all of the other planets based on their relative speed and distance from the sun. So first, the the closest planet, which is Mercury to the sun, gets assigned to the closest signs flanking the luminaries, which is Gemini and Virgo. Then Venus uh, gets is the next furthest and uh, sort of slowest planet out, gets assigned to the next two flanking signs, which is Taurus and Libra. And then it keeps going to Mars and then to Jupiter and then finally to Saturn. So the um, the assignments or the rulership scheme originally comes out of that sort of um, sim- the symmetry of those assignments in some sense. Right. And it also comes out of the core concept of dignity being a political concept as in what is your place in society? Where do you have rulership? Where do you have control? And where do you have responsibility? That it all comes out of that. In... When moderns talk about rulership, I think they talk about it more in terms of, well, Pluto should be the modern ruler of Scorpio because Scorpio is very Plutonian. They're similar. Right. So it's the old rulerships. Yeah. 
it's through the idea of, of similarity or affinity where they say that uh, a planet like Neptune, for example, um, has certain qualities that seem to be very similar to the qualities we associate with Pisces, and therefore Neptune, as a result of that, those similarities should be assigned to or should become the ruler of that sign. Right. And there's also an interesting, I did a study on this that I'm going to do an article with it. It's out on my blog. I'm going to do more with it. That um, the rulerships also change our concept of the sign. If you read in astrological literature from about mid 1800s on through to the present day, and you look at the meaning of the sign Aquarius, the interpretation of the meaning of the sign Aquarius has changed drastically as the concept of the ruler of Aquarius shifted from being Saturn to being Uranus. If you read old meanings from like 1800s of what Aquarius means, it's much more Saturnine. And by the time you start getting into mid-20th century, Aquarius starts to sound more and more Uranian. Right. So the delineations in our understanding, not our understanding, our interpretations of the qualities that we associate with the signs of the zodiac are different now than they were 200 or 300 years ago for those signs. And so that's one of the issues that people run into. Like if I know that was an issue for me because I first learned modern astrology where you learn the meanings of the signs and you learn the meanings of the planets. And so you would naturally say, well, of course, Aquarius matches Uranus because we have all of these meanings of Aquarius that are so similar to Uranus. But then when you go back and study the history of astrology, you realize that astrologers, once they decided Uranus should be assigned to Aquarius just based on an sort of inherent assumption, then they started changing the meaning of the sign Aquarius in order to suit Uranus rather than the sign Aquarius inherently having that meaning on its own. Yes, very much. So like, I'll take Aquarius again. If you go reading the writing on astrology in the early part of the century by Alistair Crowley, who did a lot of ghostwriting for Evangeline Adams, he will talk about how Aquarius is idealistic, but it's a kind of steadily conservative sign. It's not the kind of sign that wants to buck the system. That's wildly different from the way Aquarius is described in 1980s or 70s, 80s, 90s in like Stephen Forrest's work and that kind of thing. So literally, the meaning of the sign has switched because um, our concept of the meaning of the ruler has switched. In other right. words, the sign takes as much as its meaning from the ruler as the ruler being assigned the sign because it fits there. Right. And so, so one of the arguments I've heard that traditional authors like I think Lee Lehman makes about mm -hmm. in her book on the essential dignities and, and other traditional works is the notion that essential dignity has to do with planetary strength, not affinity. And, and, and some traditional astrologers will argue that dignity has to do with strength and that's different than affinity. And that's why they object to the modern notion of that planets should be assigned to signs based on perceived affinity. Um, one of my issues, though, with that is, is that argument, even though I'm partially sympathetic to that line of thought as a component to essential dignity, is that there does seem to have been some concept of affinity arising out of the symmetry, even in the traditional rulership scheme. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's not that it's not that there was a complete absence of any notion of affinity. It's just that affinity wasn't the primary motivating factor, but the affinity almost came 
after the, the symmetry was established. Yes. And it's also that, I'll go back to that modern one. Aquarius had a great deal of affinity with Uranus after Uranus became uh, accepted as the ruler of Aquarius. The ruler to sign relationship preceded the affinity because the meaning changed when the ruler changed. Right. Yeah. And, and that becomes part of a broader debate and a broader um, dialogue that's happening now after the revival of the older sources from prior to the discovery of Uranus. And when we realize that Aquarius used to be perceived much differently as like a fixed air sign that was ruled by Saturn versus you know, in modern times, it's it's a Uranus ruled sign that's associated with the eleventh house, and there's additional sort of overlays from the New Age movement that um, associated itself with Aquarius and therefore projected some of its idealism onto that sign as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you have, and this is a whole other issue, the whole sign equals house thing. But that's that's right. going a little too far to the side. Sure. How did we actually get onto this topic when, because we were making the transition into the next dignity? It was and- from um, modern versus traditional rulerships. Okay. So affinity that's, versus. That's where that sidetrack came from. Got it. Okay. So, um, and, and variations, I guess I should say. That was actually the, the starting point for that. So yes. the third essential dignity, which is the first of the more minor dignities, right. is the concept of of the terms or what's sometimes called the bounds. Right. Uh, so how do you explain or introduce this concept? Well, the terms and the bounds, in terms of what terms mean, one of in to really understand the um rulership of bounds is that in the early astrology it is very much tied in with being a Time Lord technique, that where you see the bounds used the most in the earliest astrology is in combination with, you could call it direction, you could call it distribution, you could call it circumambulation or whatever, uh, but especially of the Ascendant, as it moves through the bounds or terms, um, the planet who is in charge of that bound or term becomes the lord of the time. And that ties in with the meaning of the word bounder term, which is how things get implemented, how things get done, how they actually get put into effect. It, right. it grows out of the, the time lord use of it. Right. But what? maybe let's start just by describing what they are. I mean, the bounds are, for those that have, have no idea what they are, are a, right. a division of each of the signs of the zodiac into five unequal subsections, uh, which are ruled by one of five traditional planets, basically, right? right? Yeah. Do you have a wheel that shows um, us? So I have the rulership scheme here on the table of planetary rulerships. I also have a separate one that is direct uh, dedicated to the bounds themselves. I don't necessarily have a wheel though, no. Or if you if you have a chart wheel, it could be a chart of a person that has the bound wheel in it. That's um, how I like to picture it. Yeah, I only recently like created one of those finally or figured out how to create it in Solar Fire. Okay. Uh um it's let me then think in terms of using your map that we have up here. That if you have, let us say, the Ascendant, um, I'm going to start it in the third degree of Aries, so I'm starting on that first line there. 
then the ascendant is in the bounds or the terms of Jupiter. Um, Jupiter is going to have a lot to do with how the ascendant acts in the world, how it implements, how it actually gets things done. Jupiter's in charge of that. Jupiter's like a low-level manager here saying, okay, I'm going to take what the ruler wants to do and actually put it into effect. And then as you go through the day, the zodiac is going to be rotating in primary direction up past the ascendant, and eventually that um, degree is going to move, let us say, to six and then seven degrees of Aries. This is within the bounds of Venus. So now Jupiter leaves the scene, Venus takes control. Now Venus is the bound lord, is the lord of the time. Venus is the planet that's saying, how are things getting implemented now? Um, it has, bounds have an awful lot to do with how things actually get done. The metaphor I like to use, if you think of, um, rulership, if a sign ruler is like, um, a manager or something like that, ah, there's a wheel, beautiful. If a sign ruler is a manager, ah, you covered them. If yeah. a sign rule is a manager, then a bound ruler is like a low-level manager or a superintendent or something like that who is taking the overall domicile ruler's agenda and having to put it into effect. And you'll see a description of something like that in some of the uh, traditional texts. I don't have the which text memorized off the top of my head, where basically if a ruler is working through a sympathetic bound lord, it will be able to get more done than if it's working through an unsympathetic bound lord. It's, does a manager have a reliable and, um, what's the word I want? Sympathetic lower level manager who is implementing its uh, orders, or is the manager having to work through a low level manager he doesn't get along with? Sure. So, so bound that... level has a lot to do with implementation. By the way, while we're on this chart, can I point out something interesting with the um, the bounds of the terms there? Uh, sure, although we are running out of time, so we should definitely keep okay. moving sort of concisely. Okay. Just the quick thing I will mention is that if you went around and looked at predominance of terms or bounds, including like in this chart, Sun, Jupiter, Pluto, Ascendant, Moon – they're all in the bounds or terms of Mercury, which means Mercury is going to tend to be how Maya Angelou gets things done, how she implements things, i.e. she's a writer. Sure. Here's an example. So the, the terms or the bounds are subdivisions of each of the zodiacal signs where you have like a sublord or a planetary sublord that um, is an additional factor that's in charge of each placement in the birth chart. Yes, and the sign ruler has to work through the term ruler to get its agenda done. So like in the ascendant there, the sun has to work through Mercury in order to get its agenda done. Right, and that becomes really crucial because in some, um, there were some advanced calculations for determining the overall ruler of the chart known as the master of the nativity. And in some of these calculations, the bound lord becomes important because the bound lord, as a, as a sub ruler, can either become the um, it can basically become the co ruler of the chart or the joint ruler of the chart, where 
Sometimes it's the domicile lord, which is the primary ruler of the chart. Usually it's like the domicile lord of the sect light, which is the sun in a day chart, if it's well placed, or the moon in a night chart, or if both luminaries are poorly placed, then it defaults to the domicile lord of the ascendant. Um, and that's said to be the master of the nativity, but then the bound lord of that planet of the sect light usually, or the ruler of the ascendant, the bound lord is said to be the co-ruler of the, the nativity or the co-master of the nativity. So it has some secondary overall rulership role in the chart. Yes. And this might be, since we're wanting to touch on the others, since you're talking about the sect light, this is a good place, I think, to tie in the triplicity rulers. Oh, right. That's actually, that's hilarious because we actually went out of order. That, that was my fault, where triplicity is actually the third essential dignity and the right. bound or term is actually the fourth. Right. But that's okay because when you're dealing with triplicity, um, number one, triplicity is a dignity where in each of the given signs, there's not one triplicity, Lord, it's three. And if you look through the uh, traditional writers, you're going to see quite a bit of inconsistency in terms of how they're used. Sometimes one will be used, sometimes two will be used, sometimes three will be used. What I think is going on with triplicity is that it's a rulership that has to do with group support, tribe support, family support, political support. There's something group about triplicity. So getting back to the sect light, one of the early ways they would um, delineate a chart, and there's some beautiful examples in Dorotheus, once you have the sect of the chart, look at what sign the luminary of the sect is in and look at the three triplicity lords. There we go. Look at the three triplicity lords of that sign. If they're in good shape, then the sect light is going to get a lot of support. They've got family support, they've got political support, they've got friends in high places, that kind of thing. So triplicity as a group uh, sort of dignity. That's the meaning I see it played out, plays sure. out in charts. So, so this is different than the other ones that we've talked about so far where it's been, like with domicile rulership, it's been a single planet being in charge of an entire sign. And right. with exaltation, it's been a planet uh, being exalted or, or well-placed or auspiciously placed in a single sign versus being inauspiciously placed in the sign opposite to that. What yes. we have with triplicity, triplicity rulership is it's a grouping of the signs into four sets of three, otherwise known as the triplicities, which are like the fire triplicity, the earth triplicity, the air triplicity, and the water triplicity. And then each of those triplicities is assigned three planetary rulers that rule over not just one of those signs, but they all three jointly rule over um, each of those triplicities together at the same time. So for example, Jupiter, the Sun, and Saturn are the rulers of the fire triplicity. And it's not that they're assigned to a specific sign, it's that all three of them have some sort of joint rulership uh, over that entire triplicity or over that group of three signs. And so that's why you you say that this has this dignity has more to do with some sort of group affiliation. Yes. And there's another striking uh, pattern about that is that the two, if you will, passive or feminine signs, the earth and water, the three triplicity rulers are all the night planets, Moon, Venus, and Mars. Right. And sect, night and day, is the most basic political division in all of astrology. And then you've got with the 
if fire and air, the triplicity rulers of those two are the day planets with the one odd planet there, Mercury, in this case being aligned with air and sun in the most diurnal of all the elements, the fire sign. So there's a relationship between how triplicity was assigned with the concept of sect. Sure. So there's there's a tendency for the diurnal planets to rule over the masculine triplicity signs, right. and there's a tendency for the feminine planets to be the triplicity rulers over the or the nocturnal planets to be triplicity rulers over the feminine signs. Yes, yes. And again, as I interpret them, it's it's a family kind of a dignity. It's a group support kind of a dignity. Uh, are you among people who are helping you? Are you in a group where um, you've got friends? Sure. That's why I like it as a group uh, kind of a dignity. Yeah. And that actually makes sense. I like that sort of idea or that speculation because I mm-hmm. sort of suggested or I suspected, I argued in my book that this concept of, of the triplicity rulers and this dignity in the early Hellenistic tradition may have grown out of somehow the idea of what they referred to as the uh, joint domicile lords or joint rulers of signs where um you know you have the domicile lords which are like the rulers you have the exaltation placements but then there was some broader notion of could other uh signs that have some connection or some close affinity with other signs that share an affinity could they have like backup or secondary rulers in some way? And that's where the triplicity rulers kind of came from. Yes. And also that's one of the places that just this overall dignity system is so very, very valuable. I see it so much in the traditional literature that I gave it the name, the backup plan. You're going to see when in a analysis in the chart, it will say, oh, we're looking at this particular ascendant. Where is the domicile ruler? That's in bad shape. Okay, go looking at the exalted ruler to the sign. How's that one doing? Is that one in bad shape? Okay, now go look at the triplicity rulers and so on. So when you have levels of rulership, when you have multiple ones, if you have a planet whose domicile lord is in some way stressed or not helpful in dignity, there's other places to look for support. There's other places to look for help. When dad's not around, big brother takes over. Right. And and that's really crucial because this concept of triplicity rulership and one of the primary applications in the ancient authors like Dorotheus and Valens was almost like a secondary or an, an alternative domicile rulership scheme where when you're doing like the triplicity rulers of the sect light technique, instead of looking at the domicile lord of the, the sect light or the luminary that's in charge, if you have a day chart or a night chart, you look to the triplicity rulers to see if that luminary has support. Yes. And if those triplicity rulers are well-placed. Yes. And related to that, and Ben's got a very, Ben Dykes has a very nice uh, section on this in his introduction to the recent translation he did to Dorotheus. He's got a section on triplicity lords in the intro to that, where he basically says, uh, triplicity has to do with good or bad fortune. And a lot of what determines good or bad fortune is, do you have a supportive group, a supportive family, a supportive environment or not? The two kind of play together. If you've got 
a supportive group environment, if you've got friends, you're going to tend to have the breaks go your way because you've got someone who's going to make a phone call for you. You've got someone who's going to cover for you. You've got someone who's going to help for you. So then triplicity as family dignity plays in with the whole notion of the triplicity lords determining overall good or bad fortune. Right. The two concepts connected. And that's tied in with the triplicity rulers of the sect light technique, especially, which we yes. don't have time to get to, unfortunately, today, mm-hmm. but maybe in the future. The, the last thing we should probably mention about this concept is that it's weird and it's unique among the essential dignity concepts because it's not always the same, but it actually alters depending on if you have a day chart or a night chart. The same planets still rule the triplicity, but the order of the rulerships um, changes. So. Yes. In the uh, triplicity rulership scheme, you have a primary ruler, a secondary ruler, and then a third ruler, or what's sometimes called a cooperating ruler. Right. Um, and the order changes depending on if you have a day or night chart. So, for example, for the fire triplicity signs, which are Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius, if you have a day chart, then the rulers are primarily, or number one is the sun, number the number two ruler is Jupiter, and the number three ruler is Saturn. However, if you have a night chart, then the the order switches, and the primary ruler is Jupiter, the secondary ruler is the Sun, and the third ruler is Saturn. So that's a little bit different, and it's like that for all four of the triplicities, where it's not necessarily static, but it's partially these rulership relations for triplicity is partially based on the sect of the chart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I tend to emphasize with that is In the day chart, it will be Sun, Jupiter, Saturn. In the night chart, it will be Jupiter, Sun, Saturn. In both charts, it'll still be the same three planets. Right. So we still need to look at all three of those. And I personally, in the way I use them, I would pay attention to that order only if there were a particular reason that like Sun and Jupiter in the chart were for some reason playing at cross purposes. If they're playing together, then... They're part of the same team. Sure. So I treat them more as a group than I do individually. That, okay. That's how they work for me. Got it. All right. So that is the concept of the triplicity rulers, or a very brief brief take on it. Right. Um, so besides that, we've already started talking about the bounds, which are subdivision or the terms, which are subdivisions of the signs. Right. Where, for example, in the sign Aries, Jupiter rules the first five degrees. Uh, from zero to five degrees of that sign. Then Venus takes uh, the next several degrees from like six degrees to 11 degrees of Aries. Then Mercury takes 12 to 19 degrees, Mars 20 to 24, and then finally Saturn 25 to 29 or, or 30 degrees basically. So with the primary set or the most popular set of bounds, which are known as the Egyptian bounds or the Egyptian terms, it's only one of those five visible planets that's assigned to the signs of the zodiac, um, and then the degrees, the degree ranges vary depending on the sign. So, for example, Jupiter ruled the five first six degrees of Aries, but in Taurus, Venus rules the first seven degrees of that sign. Right, and there are. This is beyond the scope of what we can cover, but the actual number of degrees is that each of the planets have are related to a technique for determining length of life, the greater, lesser, and medium planetary years. That's probably level of uh, complexity beyond what we should go into. But the magic word with bounds is very much implementation, getting things done, low-level manager. 
where the rubber hits the road. That's the key concept with bounds. Yeah, that um that notion of the the term is bounds or terms and there's or or sometimes that you could translate the original term horia from Greek as confines and there's some notion of of restriction or setting limits and I think one of the strong suspicions I've had for a long time is that the bounds um may have that term because of that original connection where they often primarily seem to be used or invoked within the context of the length of life treatment as being able to set some sort of limit or some sort of um, confines on the length of the person's life yes. or like the extent of the person's life or something like that. Mm -hmm. Boundary or terminus, both of them have to do with borders, constricted order. I think of it as like a garden plot. Yeah. Um, and sure. it's also, if you think of it as implementation, it's got a slang connotation in our modern English language. It's, um, okay, you'll tell us, uh, what it is we need to do, but we're going to implement it on my terms. Right. I'm, I'm setting the, the boundaries within which the rules, the structure within which it's going to actually get done. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and then also there's just the question, if you have like a, a sublord of a sign, the question mm -hmm. of, is it a sublord who's going to be lenient on you? Is it like a benefic sublord or is it a sublord that's going to kind of, kind of be, like a jerk to you or kind of going to set harder terms or harder limits like a malefic like Mars or Saturn. Exactly. And that is, this is one of the um, few just serious consistencies in every one of the uh, signs ends on the bounds or terms of a malefic. Right. It's always either Saturn or Mars, usually whichever one would be have least affinity with that sign. Which is part of the reason it's just pretty uh, consistent in the traditional text that to be in the very late degrees of a sign is to be considered negative. Because when you're in the late degrees of the sign, you're always in the bounds of a malefic. Sure. And so we should state then that there's some issues because the there's a few different – in the ancient uh, tradition, the Hellenistic tradition, there were a few different set of bounds or terms – Mm -hmm. And they had different degrees assigned to each of the planets. And the, mo the most prominent or, or popular set is the Egyptian bounds or the bounds that were attributed to the Egyptians, which probably come from the text of Nechepso and Petasiris, who are two of the lost ancient supposed founders of the Hellenistic tradition. Um, but even though this is the most popular set, there's still some ambiguity about how the specific degree ranges were assigned to each of the planets. And even though we can see some patterns, like that there's a tendency to put the benefics at the beginning of the signs and the malefics at the end of the signs, um, nobody's ever fully worked out exactly what the rationale is for these assignments. So it's a little bit of a mystery there. Correct. Um, there was a secondary or a competing set that seems to have been in invented or introduced by Claudius Ptolemy in the second century, where he looked at the Egyptian bounds and he he kind of saw some patterns, but he didn't seem to like that there wasn't a clear rationale. And so he developed his own set, which um, has a clear specific rationale, but because he was the one that came up with it, or, or he claimed to have found it in like a lost text, but people often traditionally have looked at that with some skepticism, thinking that he probably just came up with it on his own. And so those that set of bounds was not very popular until the 17th century, uh, when William Lilly and some of his contemporaries started using Ptolemy's set, and then they became a bit more popular. 
Um, but otherwise, traditionally, the the Egyptian bounds seem to be the most popular set. And it does, in terms of recent traditional uh, astrology, recent since Age of Lily, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the Egyptian bounds have only really been being recovered and widely used again in about the last 20, 30 years with the recovery of the earlier texts. Would you agree on that one? Um, yeah, well, I mean, modern astrologers have not even been using them at all for most of the 20th century. The bounds or the terms weren't even used. It was just mm -hmm. domicile rulership for the most part and maybe occasionally exaltation, but even exaltation largely fell away from most practice. And most of the other essential dignities were not really used that much either. Um, it was in the 1980s with the revival of traditional style horary um, centered around the work of William Lilly that suddenly the bounds started being used again. And since it was revived from Lilly, they were originally using the Ptolemy version. Um, but then after that, with the revival of authors like Dorotheus and Valens, it became clear that the earlier tradition tended, the Hellenistic and medieval tradition tended to use the Egyptian bounds and the the Ptolemaic bounds were a little bit more of a, a peculiar sort of oddity because they were unique to Ptolemy and then they don't show up a lot until the time of Lily, like many centuries later. Mm -hmm. And like like many things in astrology, an awful lot of the uh, choice as to which particular set that uh, a particular astrologer will end up using, mm -hmm. it depends on their lineage. It depends on their teacher. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and this is- It's a very strong influence that way. Definitely. Um yeah. So, and this is one of those areas where, because of the ambiguity, especially surrounding the Egyptian bounds, there's a little bit more, more diciness, you know, conceptually, just in terms of like what is this based on and stuff. But, um, yeah. Anyways, uh, maybe we should move on to the the final dignity, mm -hmm. uh, which is the concept of of decan or or phase. That of all the dignities is that's the hardest for me to get a handle on. And part of that seems to be that even when I went go digging through these in the older text, face is still showing up, but it's not showing up consistently, and it doesn't seem to be used that much with the other dignities. By the time you get to even like some of the later Hellenistic and early Persian and stuff, an awful lot of the places where I see face use, it has connotation of face as in having to do with persona, appearance, how something looks, superficial. Right. Ah, there we go. So this is just a chart that show a wheel that shows the signs of the zodiac, the decans, the twelfth parts, which is a completely different subdivision, and then the bounds or terms. Yes. And that is the divisions into three in that Outer wheel just inside the zodiac is indeed the uh, faces, I call them. Can we go back to that other one just a sec, uh, Chris? The sure. wheel? Just what I wanted to point out, because this is uh, particularly important, because the word decanate gets used in different senses, that the traditional Western one is what I call the Chaldean order. Um, I'm going to start over with Leo there. Notice that the order of the decans goes in the reverse order of the planets from Saturn on in. So it's always Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Moon, and then the pattern repeats. 
Right. So let's let's define it really quickly. So the the decans or the faces are divisions of each of the signs of the zodiac into three. Mm-hmm. So where where each each of these subdivisions is ten degrees, and then each of those ten degrees is assigned to a specific planet. And what you're explaining right now is the that there's actually an order in which the planets were designed, uh, assigned or designated, which is based on or is called descending Chaldean order. Yes, and I particularly want to mention that because you'll see in a lot of um, Western astrology text, I think from about the mid 800s on, that they will use a system of decan decans that are de- uh, derived from um, Indian from Vedic astrology, which is breaking them up into three. And I wanted to emphasize that because, as I understand it, this system here, the reverse Chaldean order, this is the one that has roots in the Western tradition. Like, this is the one I use exclusively. Yeah, so there are, in in the 20th century, a lot of the the use, the division of the Deccans was based on a, a triplicity assignments that actually came in from the Indian tradition partially. Um, yeah, but this is a separate set that goes back to the sort of earlier part of the Hellenistic tradition where the Deccans were originally from Egyptian astrology, where they were probably specific fixed stars that the Egyptians used to time specific religious rituals, um, especially when they were those stars were rising over the horizon or culminating overhead. Um, but then later, at some point in the Hellenistic tradition, that they became more abstract, sort of idealized divisions with specific planets assigned to them, so that they were like subdivisions of the signs of the zodiac rather than being associated with specific fixed stars. Mm-hmm. Especially with faces, it feels like something got lost there. That, however, it was used in the Egyptian system. I suspect that this is my own um, hunch on this one, and I think this ties in, by the way, with what. Uh, Austin Kopic did with them. I think they were, each of those sections of the Zodiac were related to specific minor gods, goddesses, whatever you want to call them. So they had a, um, religious isn't quite the right word, but had something to do with which gods were in charge of the particular part of the uh, Zodiac. Pretty quickly, that got lost, and face most of the descriptions of face you'll see in the Western traditional literature. It's some variant on having to do with appearance. Right. Here's how things look. Here's how things appear. You'll see that even um, this Western um, system of faces, you will see in the works of the 19th century English astrologer Safariel who uses the face of the ascendant to talk about how the personality is going to come across. How's the personality going to appear? Right. The, th- the thing about face as fitting within our overall political scheme, it seems to be the one dignity that doesn't really have any connotation of power or mm-hmm. of authority or of control. It's someone who has a job to do. It's someone who maybe has a place, but doesn't have an awful lot of say about how that gets played out. It could also have to do with a, a, here's how someone looks. It could also have to do with the face connotation of being a mask or a persona or how people come on and so on. It's It's got kind of a different flavor than the other ones do. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of strength is this feeling I get as a dignity. Sure. And it's, yeah, it's one of those that's tricky just because it's such a clear sort of abstract assignment based on the, the Chaldean order. And it just starts at Aries and assigns Mars to the first 10 degrees of Aries, evidently, because Mars is the domicile lord of that sign. And then it works its way down in descending uh, Chaldean order through then the sun rules the next 10 degrees of of Aries, and then Venus rules the third 10 degrees. Um, and this, this is one of those that elicits some debates. I mean, I, I don't personally use the decans a lot myself. I know Austin does use them, or he thinks there's elements of these assignments that can be incorporated into delineations very usefully. Um, it's not something that I've, I've focused on a lot, but it is one of the traditional or became, certainly by the medieval tradition, one of the ones that people would pay attention to as a, as a lesser dignity. Mm-hmm. And also, it's um, there was an interesting case. I've got a write-up on this one and a particular case in my book. Sometimes face in terms of role in society, um, a planet that has only face can manifest like as a volunteer worker. Okay. Someone who is performing a service here, but has no authority, no control, anything like that, but yet is offering something. Sure. Um, so where I am, what fascinates me in these and where I'm looking in terms of my own work with them is very much how can we take these and get at the individual flavors of them and then take these flavors and translate them into concrete and specific kinds of roles instead of just this one's strong and that one's not as strong and so on. They're not tick marks on a chart. They all have different flavors. And I feel like what I'm starting to do and what Ben is doing and what others are doing is to recover the richness of the flavor, the richness of these traditions, so that we're taking these dignities, we're making them more concrete, we're making them more colorful. We're giving them more meaning. We're giving them more richness. Right. Trying to to recover or, or access again the original richness of the dignities by understanding the terminology and, and using the terminology as an access point for understanding the conceptual motivation, uh, but then also applying them in practice and trying to see how that conceptual motivation can sometimes play out very literally in delineations. Exactly. So taking the concrete richness, and then translating it into concrete terms. Like where we said with the Lily example, um, a planet in fall can literally mean a sinking ship. Um, a planet exalted can mean a very valued treasure that's, that, that's giving the meaning concrete terms. And sure. I see that more and more and more as I go looking in the chart, looking for that flavor. Triplicity ruler could mean you've got a friend who's making a phone call, or you've got a cousin who works in the government who's willing to vouch for you. That's right. how triplicity rulers play out. So one final thing we should mention before we wrap up is the thing that developed eventually later on, which is the point schemes that sometimes apply to the essential dignities. Mm-hmm. And this is... um a little bit controversial because it wasn't really used in the Hellenistic tradition. They didn't really have a point scheme, but instead the most of these rulerships seem to have been techniques that were used in order to make oftentimes qualitative judgments about the quality of a planet's significations and how those would express. Eventually, later in the medieval tradition, at one point, um, they started assigning 
point scores in order to try to tabulate when like 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 the overall condition of a planet in a chart as a sort of shortcut for being able to glance at a chart and just count up which one has the most dignities and say that that's like the strongest planet in the chart or the most auspicious or most well placed or what have you so eventually the i think the point score that came to dominate by the later part of the tradition was that the domicile domicile placement if a planet was in domicile it was given 5 points a planet in exaltation was given four points. Uh, a planet in triplicity was given three points, and a planet in uh, uh, the bounds or terms was given two points, and a planet in its decan was given one point. Right. And related to that, and I think this is a good place to look at how that can be used. One of the most prominent places that was published is in Lily. You got his table of fortitudes and abilities where he has mm-hmm. these point scores. But if you look in his book, in that second magnificent book on Hori, he's got something like 40 examples there. He uses the point scores in exactly one. And he basically says, I'm using this in order to train people who are new to this. I've nicknamed that page William Lilly's Cheat Sheet. Okay. And we use that in the Dignities class I do. And I think the way Lily used it is the way I think it's useful. The point scoring sheet there with Mm -hmm. the orders, I think of that as like a set of training wheels. This is training you what to scan for, training you how to weigh up all these kinds of things. And to get too hung up on the scoring, I think, is missing the point. Even where you've got it there in William Lilly's book, Lilly doesn't use it that extensively, but I think it's most valuable as a teaching tool. Um, having that table of fortitudes and abilities with the relative ranks and going to through two or three dozen charts with that, you're going to start picking stuff out of charts you just never saw before. So like I said, to me, it's William Lilly's cheat sheet. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think of it. Um you know, I display just in my solar fire charts, like I'll have, there's a box with the essential dignities and it shows, you know, some point score, but that's just because it's built into, uh, it's basically built into the traditional essentially essential dignities table in solar fire. And it's not necessarily because I pay attention to the point scores because, because I think for most of these, the rulerships are more qualitative and showing you something about how the quality of the planet is altered or is altering its manifestation based on what sign it's in. And sometimes that can be more auspicious and other times it can be less auspicious, but it's not necessarily always something that you need to pay attention to as a matter of strength. And sometimes if you reduce it all down or you make them all equivalent by just giving them a point score, sometimes you can lose a lot of the subtlety or the nuance of the the distinctions between the different dignities. Yes, very much. And using them is very much... um teaching what to scan for. Um, yeah, it's it's a training system. And after you've taken those point scores and gone through them all the time, then you've gone, okay, retrograde, minus five. But what does retrograde mean in this particular chart? What planet's retrograde? What sign is in it? What is it applying to? And so on. The point score is just a place to start. You're seeing what to notice. And it's kind of a... It's giving you a feel of how to judge and evaluate because that part that is part of where this is all going. But the judging is all and evaluating starts with the point score. It doesn't end there. 
the judging and evaluation is very much a matter of uh, weighing up all the various qualities. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned very briefly, that's something that's great to mention at the end, that these are the essential dignities. And then Lily and other authors have a whole other set of accidental dignities, which are things like, is the planet direct or retrograde? Is the planet angular or is it cadent? And other considerations that are uh, sort of separate from this consideration, the primary consideration of essentially zodiacal strength. So essential dignity is zodiacal strength, and accidental dignity often ends up being non-zodiacal strength, so strength by house or um, planetary motion or configuration with other planets and things like that? Yes. There was, um, the way I heard it phrased, I think it was Demetrius said this, um, and I think this is an oversimplification that essential dignity has to do with quality and accidental dignity has to do with opportunity to act. Mm. The more I think about it, accidental affects quality also. And I really don't think essential dignities work just out of context. You can't look at a chart and just say, there's four rulers here, this is a wonderful person. You need to use the entire system of the essential and the accidental. You have to look at the angles. You have to look at the houses. You have to look at whether it's something combust and so on. Yeah, definitely, because you've got you know famous people like I don't know, Hitler that have like dignified planets or like serial killers like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer, who has four in essential rulership. I do a chapter on Jeffrey Dahmer in the book because if you can't handle Dahmer with essential dignities, you don't understand the dignity system. Sure. Yeah. So that's a really good point then to end on because there's a lot more. This is like one component, but then like with the Maya Angelou case where we pointed out you know, Mercury's configuration to Saturn or its conjunction with Venus or its sextile to the midheaven and other factors like that. It's one component in terms of an overall analysis that's going to change and be different depending on the chart, but it's definitely an important core component that's one of the first things that traditional astrologers look at, which is um, how are the planets doing in terms of their zodiacal placement in a chart? Yeah, and it essential dignities aren't where things stop, but you sure have to start there. It is such an important core part of the tradition and that whole core part of tradition, which is precisely evaluating and judging and weighing and figuring out how things are going to play out. I cannot conceive of doing uh, astrology without uh, using dignity and debility. For me, it's the absolute core of what I do. Dignity, debility, and reception. If you were going to sum up what I do in three words, those are the three words. Sure, definitely. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this discussion. Uh, Where can people find out more information about your work? Okay. My website is studentofastrology.com. And I have a blog out there. I have the two books. You pointed them out at the beginning. The uh, Intro to Traditional Nader Astrology and the one that I just published, which is the Using Dignities in Astrology. Thank you. And these are part of a series of three. So if they look similar, there's a reason. But I wanted to point out these are available in print from these usual uh, outlets. If you're interested in a electronic copy, I have... PDF versions available at my site, Student of Astrology. And in honor of my new book coming out and it being the month of May and the fact that I've got this podcast, my electronic books are on sale this month. 
Okay, so if you're excellent. interested, pop on over to my site and check them out. Cool. All right. That's studentofastrology.com. And otherwise, people can search for those titles and find them on amazon.com. That's correct. They're available from Amazon and other uh, retailers. Okay. Awesome. And then finally, you're teaching some courses uh, at Kepler College, right? That's correct. There's two courses I do. We're at this point alternating the terms with them. There's Using Dignities in Astrology, and that book developed basically as the course textbook over two years of teaching that class. And I just recently started a new class, which is called The Cycle of the Year, Traditional Predictive Astrology, and which is covering the core suite of traditional predictive techniques that are used together more often than any I have seen in the tradition, which is the direction through the bounds, perfections, and solar returns, and then transits and so on under that. And I'm just finishing up the final draft of a book on that that I hope to publish a bit later this year. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that, and maybe we can have you on again at some point to talk about that book. I would love to talk about it. It's a fascinating area. Cool. All right. Well, people can check out the Kepler website for more information about your courses, which looks like it's now keplercollege.org. Correct. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for congratulations on the release of the new book. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. And uh, yeah, I really appreciated this discussion. So thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking with you. And I thank you very much for inviting me for this dialogue. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, uh, become a patron to support my work uh, doing this. And uh, I think that's it for this episode. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll see you next time.